Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. To get more information about our show, please go to Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hi, Kim. we got a lot of articles to talk about today. Well, there's a lot of stuff going on in the wine world right now. The first article is from the Napa Valley Register. And first off, I want to say this site annoys me, but they have great content. Did you, do you notice anything when you go on it? Why does this site annoy you? At first, it comes up with a million surveys. It's one of those oh, sites. Oh, yes, that's right. Did you right. notice that? Yeah. And, and then ads just pommel you so you always if you go to this site just avoid the survey get right to the content good <laughs> stuff and th- they were talking in this article is why old vines and old vines can we hear a lot in the wine world yeah we get this question from students in our classes a lot like what does old vines mean why sometimes wines are a little bit more expensive that have an old vine label on them and we often talk about this topic in our label class because there are a lot of things on an American wine label that are really only there for marketing purposes. And Old Vines is one of those things. There's no regulation about the term Old Vines that has a definition that you have to stick to. You can really stick it on any label, can't you? Yeah, it's one of those, I think, abused terms that people are shocked when they hear it's not a regulated term. And I think people need to also get a background a vine for grapes typically three to four years before it can produce grapes to be used to make wine so in the u.s i could plant four years later make a wine and say it's old vine because <laughs> it's four years old which yeah. it's not right right yeah grapevines are kind of like apple trees it's not like corn that you have to replant every year so it's a it's a plant that needs a good structural system good root system and does take a few years before it starts producing grapes that can be made into wine but it has a lifespan. So most vines will produce pretty well from when they're four until they're about 20, 25. And then for a lot of grape varieties, that's sort of the end of the lifespan of that grapevine. But there are some grape varieties that do continue to produce better and better quality grapes as they get much older. And they might produce fewer bunches of grapes, but the quality of those grapes is going to be really, really good. And Zinfandel is one of those grape varieties, which is why you see a lot of old vine Zinfandel from California. Because what's happening is as the grapevine gets older, your grapes are much better. So your resulting wine is going to be a whole lot better, but there's going to be less of it. So it is going to be a little bit more expensive. In one of the regions in California, Lodi has adopted a, actually a regulation for a Lodi wine to say old vine. It has to have 50 years of aging. I think that this is a good step for them to have taken because Lodi is the place where if you know anything about Zinfandel, and really good quality Zinfandel, this is the place. Like this is the homeland of really good Zins. So they've taken this extra step to make sure that they are protecting in a way that labeling on their labels. There was good background information here about how, what are the factors like of an old vine? And it said it can withstand stress better with age. Right. But that leads to less fruit, but more concentrated fruit, lower yields. And you were talking about the roots, the older the vine, the more, I guess, engaged into the earth 
earth, right? Deeper right. into the earth. Yeah. So it can last and survive a lot of disease and mm-hmm. funguses. And yeah, stuff like it that. just, it makes, there are some great varieties and Zin seems to be the one that a lot of people in California will be using that the older the vine gets, the hardier and the stronger that it gets. And this doesn't seem to be the case for every grape variety, but there's something about Zin vines that as they get older, they, um, they just, they seem to handle old age better. And they were talking about styles, Kim. What did you think about them comparing a young vine wine to an old vine? Did you agree with the style comparisons? Yeah, I did. I overall did. It, usually for the younger ones, they're a little flashier, fruitier, a little higher acid. But for the older ones, you get more more nuance. I think more concentration is the is the big thing too. It's like the the flavor packs a bigger punch. What did you feel about yeah, their descriptions? I think they were saying they were saying the younger vines more fruit driven, which mm-hmm. is what most consumers are looking for nowadays. So as you said, the older vines, more going on, more concentrated fruit. There might be other fruits you're getting in there. So people might be thrown off not knowing that style. Mm-hmm. And I do see a trend where old vines was a hot thing due to Zinfandel. Now I think it's kind of dropped off Yeah, a bit. I would say it was probably, what do you think, like 10 years ago? Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe even 20 Zin- years ago? When Zinfandel was like the go-to turkey wine, mm-hmm. I think that's changed. So I think that also hurt the old vine movement. And there are other great varieties too that California does well. And there are specific producers that will concentrate on Zin, but then will have other grapes that they will also use, something like Carignan, which is native to France and Spain, but also can age particularly well here in the U.S. if they've got some older vines on their property. And you mentioned earlier about the the age of vines, like in the EU, when you hear someone in Spain say an old vine, they're probably 100, 150 right. year vines, and they look actually like trees, yeah. right? I mean, they're, they're all huge. gnarled and you know, kind of like creepy looking, and you, you look at them and you're like, how in the world? can that produce any fruit and it might only produce like literally two bunches of grapes but the but the flavor of that fruit is amazing You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find Mark online at franklinliquors.com. And you can find more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. A really geeky article that we ran across on one of our favorite wine industry sites, 750.com, was about using new gene editing technology on wine grapes. And we, every once in a while, will get like a GMO question about wines, how our grapes developed there anything funky going on with the science behind grape grapes and um, this was the first that I remember running across about actually using gene editing technology on grapes yeah this was one of those articles for me Kim it took me a couple of reads to even decipher yeah. what was going on here yeah this was really sciencey geeky Yeah, but I thought that this was interesting because since we do get that GMO question, and now with technologies like CRISPR, how is that technology being used uh, in the wine industry? And the takeaway for me from this is that it isn't really being used a whole lot right now because people do have concerns about using technologies to change the genome of, of grapes. And then as it goes into wine, it becomes a consumable product for uh, for people and that there maybe might not be as robust of a market for wines that have undergone these these changes. And a lot of it made sense in the fact that if they can isolate genes that 
uh, preventing disease. Mm-hmm. It saves a lot of money, and it's not really harming the production. Right, and it's a it's a workaround. So it's using new technologies to do the things that humans have been doing to grapes for hundreds, if not thousands, of years anyway. So usually, what happens if a if a scientist is trying to make a new grape variety that they have one parent that produces really delicious fruit but is not very disease resistant, and then you have the another parent that is very disease resistant but might not be have the flavors that you're looking for. They will combine in just natural botanical ways of combining genes, just plant reproduction, and try to get to a plant that has all of the characteristics that they're looking for. So tastes really good and is also disease resistant. But this involves breeding the plants and planting the seeds and growing the grapes and trying to figure out which actual plant has the characteristics that you're looking for. In using a technology like CRISPR, you can actually go in and edit the individual genes and take out the the problem gene, if you will, and create the genes in the plant that are resistant to disease and can improve crop sizes. And this is different from GMO altering because the difference here is that you're not adding anything from another species of plant. You're only working with that specific grape DNA. You're not you're not adding anything from a virus. You're not adding anything from a strawberry. You're not adding anything from a salmon. You're just working within the the context of the genome of the, the grape plant. The big challenge will be just public perception of if you tell someone. Absolutely. You know, I think that's always like you get with the GMO thing. I don't know if people will accept it. Yeah. I, we talked in the past, Kim, about there was a, a winery, a quote winery, but it was called AVA, A-V-A winery. And their tagline was wines without vines. So these guys are chemists and scientists and they can take a wine and chemically analyze it and without grapes, reproduce it. Right. So Just using to me, I, that's water just, and acids and alcohol. Alcohol and, and flavors. It's interesting because I was thinking, wow, this is it was crazy. And then they give a lot of examples how in everyday foods like um, vanilla, like ninety percent of the vanilla is not made with a vanilla bean. Mm-hmm. It's chemically is it I don't know, chemically made. Yeah. So when I was reading this article, I was relating to these people doing their molecular work, and I guess that's the way it's going. Yeah. Right. It's like yeah, it's like you think of it like it's a Star Trek episode, you know, and you've got reproducible food, and you know what is that the direction that we're heading in? But I, I think that you're absolutely right that the biggest hurdle probably will be consumer acceptability and getting the these things are on the market. I don't say things, you know, this is still going to be wine that is naturally made and you know still comes from real grapes. But how are the people who are in the sales force going to be able to present it to the consumers? and present it to the market and and how is the market going to accept it so what do you think Kim if you were presented with a with a grape in front of you it was the size of a grapefruit and they said it was modified right mm. or a grape that was the same looking grape it just says it's it's won't get disease which would you accept well I mean I, I would want to know a little bit more about what's going on with that I would <laughs> be more one. I would be more inclined to accept something that maybe was altered using CRISPR technologies because I've read up a little bit about it and I'm not necessarily scared at this point about 
eating something like this, but I know a lot of people are. But I, I do like the idea of being able to work with the grapes so that you can figure out a way to have them more resistant to disease. Water and availability of water is going to be a big issue in the future uh, with our climate. So that is something that scientists are, are working on. Grapes that don't necessarily need as much water as they do now. And yeah, crop size. So dealing with these issues and coming at it from a, from a scientific background, you know, these are real challenges that we are going to be facing in the future with food availability and with all th- these things that are happening with our in our, within our climate. So be on the lookout for yeah. for these wines possibly I, in the future. The reason I was kind of asking that, Kim, was I think if you told people we modified these genes of this grape, but we don't use pesticides anymore. Mm-hmm. I think they would accept. Maybe. So Maybe. I think it all comes down to perception and education and where is where is the risk that people think uh, is involved in something like this. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please visit franklinliquors.com. And to follow the show, please go to Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Our next article is from Wine Gourd. It's a blog site. And usually the gentleman who writes this, I, I don't know if he's a scientist or a mathematician, but he has a lot of math stats. But yeah, the topic, he's a number guy. Yeah, numbers man. But the topic was why comparing wine scores doesn't make sense. Is that what you got out of it? Kim? Yeah, yeah. Does this, it make sense? This, scores I thought this was a great article. Yeah, that it's hard to compare one person's wine score to another person's wine score because they might not necessarily be giving the same value to the same things about that wine. And it was something that was a little bit eye-opening for me in this opinion piece in that he did say that he thought that some scoring systems were objective. And usually when I think of wine scores and I think about, you know, wine ratings and how we taste wine and how we talk about wine is that it's not objective. It's very subjectively based on the perceptions of the person doing the tasting. But he very interestingly broke it down into two different systems, one that is a little bit more of an objective way of reviewing wines and then another way that is definitely more subjective. And we've always talked in the past, Kim, about scores, how you can Google any wine and find all ranges of scores from all different publications. There's chances are you can, not finding a review, you should probably be more worried than the other one. Yeah, way. I agree. I agree. And they could be from something like really well-regarded wine industry people who have been doing this their entire lives to anybody can put up a blog and leave a score for a wine and then it's out there on the internet and you can find it if you Google that wine. So there's really no, no, well, there there are ways that you can know if you look at somebody's background and how much they've been doing this, but their tastes might not necessarily line up with your tastes. So just because somebody has given a wine a good score or a bad score, that's not necessarily an indication that you're going to like it. Yeah. And there's a lot of studies we've seen as well that show you can tell a person it's a great score and they're just going to automatically think it's a great wine. Mm-hmm. So when I look at, we talked in the past about this as well, Kim, but when I look at reviews, I don't really care about the number as much as what they're tasting and what they're smelling. So if two critics, one's a 90 and one's a hundred, what are they, are they tasting similar things? When they comp- that's how I would compare mm-hmm. the reviews. Yeah. So, so you, you read similar? the descriptions. Yeah, the descriptions. If if 
one guy is huge. The numbers should usually be close, but if they're way off, then is one guy tasting something the other guy's not? Yeah. That's a real sign. I, I would be very skeptical of a wine that has a, a real vastly different range of scores, like you said, between 90 and 100. You know, that's pretty big because these wine scores have a lot of influence on consumers and customers and what wine is going to go home with that person that night. I think it is a it's a valid topic and consumers really do need a guide and whether it's actually talking to a person in a store or whether it's getting advice online scores are really easy for people to understand and i remember reading a biography of robert parker who kind of came up with this 100 point system that we tend to use here in the u.s and what was interesting reading that because he's an american and a lot of other wine critics especially in the early 80s when he really came on the scene were europeans so this 100 point system was really new and he based it on how we score tests at school so because the american school system you know 100 is the best that you can do on a test that's what he used so it's it's very intuitive i find for americans that if you look at a 93 you just know that oh yeah that's an a you know so this must be a good wine and i thought that was an interesting just interesting thing to look at it from that perspective we know what it means on a test so therefore we probably know what it means on a bottle of wine yeah and as a consumer always research more if you see one you say wow that's a great score but let me dig in a little more and see what someone else thought about because you'll you'll always find more than one review on a wine right and i did think that it was important that he broke down that there are some ways that you can have a little bit more of an objective way of looking at a wine and giving a wine a score and the systems that he was talking about are similar to what you use in your store mark which is called quinny where it gives points for predefined characteristics. So you have a certain amount of points that you give for the acidity and you have a certain number of points that you give for the body and the flavor and the length and the finish. And then you put all of those numbers together and then you get the score. So it would seem to me if you've got five people sitting together, there's only five points that you can give for the acidity. And so if it's like wickedly high acid, you're going to give it a higher. And if it's a lot lower, you're going to give it a lower and that hopefully everybody will be within like a point or two of each other. And that way you have a little more of an objective way to look at a wine. Yeah. And as a taster and a wine buyer, for me, I need to know how to present it to a customer and for me, it's not to say it's 90 points, but this is what I'm tasting. This is what I'm smelling. And then when I finish inputting all that data, it gives me a number. That's a that's a number that the only way I use that is if I then taste it again and I have similar tastes or smells and the number's close, I know, geez, that, that's pretty good. Right. And having that similar. consistency through your own tasting notes with the same wine, I think it'd be very helpful to consumers as well because they know that they're getting a wine that will taste the same over a little bit of time and that there's that consistency to it. Have you ever used, when you worked retail, have you ever used that to sell a wine? Used to say, what? buy buy this wine because it's 90 points? Or did you ever use that as a selling feature? Um, I would mention it from time to time, but I wouldn't necessarily have that be my go-to information that I give right off the bat about a wine. If somebody asks me about the points, then maybe we'll talk about it, but I wouldn't usually just give that info right up front. Yeah, I'm just trying to put a like an importance. I, I think sales to us as buyers, they push points a lot. Mm-hmm. 
and I don't want to be hit with that first. I mean, you bring a wine to me to try. I don't first. I don't want to know that first. Yeah, yeah. That I want to matter. talk about the other things about the wine first. I first and foremost, I want to make sure that that wine is going to be something that not only is going to be enjoyed by the consumer, but is going to fit their needs. So wine can fit in different contexts. So if you need a wine for a big special dinner, then that's very different than I need a wine just to hang out with my girlfriends on Saturday. So it's um yeah, I, I, and I think the scoring thing kind of tries to put all wine contexts into one basket and that doesn't really necessarily work for everybody. And I think the other thing to be cautious about is if there's a wine varietal say you've never tried but on the shelf talker it says oh this is a 90 point wine be aware that it's also rated by what it should taste like as a varietal so if you don't like that style just because it, it's 90 points for that style doesn't mean you're going to to like it right it's so it's an quality appro- it's appropriately it's tasting appropriate for what it is supposed to be but a pinot noir and a cabernet are going to be very different from each other and if you're just a cab drinker and you don't necessarily like lighter reds and you buy that 96 point pinot noir you might be disappointed because it's just not the style that you like to drink so what was your take on the quality aspect of this what was he getting for the score saying comparing scores does doesn't show a quality indicator because I wasn't really following the quality part that he was. I, I think he was saying that quality is subjective and that your idea of what is a quality wine and my idea of what is a quality wine, you don't necessarily know what I'm going to give so more basically what we were saying you can't just because you liked it doesn't mean the quality right, it, right. I like and yeah. for me uh say a higher acid wine might be more of an indication of quality to me whereas for you wines with more tannins might be your quality indicator and it's almost like we're speaking two different languages so you don't necessarily put the same emphasis or the same weight on something in that wine that is then telling you that this is a good quality wine like i'm doing You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine and find a little bit more about Mark at franklinliquors.com and find a little bit more about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. One of my favorite fun websites is called Atlas Obscura and they have all sorts of just like wacky, interesting information from all over the place on there. And they just started a subgroup of interesting food and wine articles that they post a couple things a day. And it's always so fascinating. And one of the ones that they just asked a question about was, do people often buy the second cheapest wine on a wine list? And if so, why? And I thought this was really an interesting question to ask of people. Yeah, it's always an old advice that you hear about looking at a a wine list that people look at the high price one, the low price one, and they pick something in the middle, I guess. So like not usually the cheapest for whatever reason, do they not want to look cheap or do they think that it's really crummy wine if it's the cheapest one on the list? So people will go up a little bit and order the second least expensive, either by the glass or bottle on the wine list. And it's like, is this true or is this an urban myth? And then they, you know, put a poll out there and they ask this question of a lot of people. Yeah. And I find myself pretty much doing this, Kim. Do you? Not, you know, as Even a, you know, every, well, like probably every uh, wine on that wine list and yeah, you order the second least expensive. It goes expensive. back to we know how they're calculating in the mock-up you know we talk about this in the past but i get i don't want to get the most expensive because i know i could probably get it half price right and i don't want to get 
the least expensive because it's probably things in the mid-range that I've never tried before that I want to explore. So that's different though. That That's you looking for something that is a little bit unusual and you're not looking at price first. Well, yeah, I'm still pretty much looking for the second cheapest thing <laughs> on the menu. So I, I agree with this. And I, I guess the, the restaurants... They must assume this is public knowledge that people might not pick the lowest. So that might be their house glass yeah, wine. I think that, that that plays into a little a little bit about this. So so anyway, this article asked this question. They put out a poll and then a few weeks later they came back with some some information and how people responded. And it seems from the numbers that a good portion of wine drinkers in restaurants will do this. Something between like 22 to 25 percent of wine drinkers will at least sometimes go for the second least expensive wine on the list. But interestingly, the way that most people said that they chose a wine was by asking somebody at the restaurant. So they asked their server or if it was a, a restaurant that had a beverage manager or a sommelier that they did ask those professionals for their recommendations and then often took them. So that made me feel good. <laughs> it means that people, wine people who know something about wine are being asked for their opinion and then that opinion is being taken by the diner. Yeah, I like that. I like that point. I like that you found there was a second part of this article that I I didn't even see. Well, I wanted see. the answer. Well, <laughs> I'm well, like, what do what do people do? I didn't even see that. So. I just saw it end asking me what I thought. <laughs> I thought that's what we were going to talk about. But I agree with the server thing. My problem with the server thing is a lot of times there might be incentives for the server to recommend a wine right. to you. So this week, Kim, you're my boss. You're saying, Mark, this week we have to push J-Lo Chardonnay. We have a ton of it. So then as the customer, I say, what shot do you recommend? You're going to say J-Law. So in turn, always ask the server why. Yes. Why are you recommending that to me? Is it, do you personally like it? What do you get out of it? And if they bring it to you and what they told you doesn't taste like what they said, then give it back, mm-hmm. right? But then they could also do the tricky thing. And if they have that wine that they need to move a lot of, what if they just put that wine as the second cheapest wine on the list? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> There sure, are other ways yeah, to do it. They know about these little things that how buying habits, Absolutely. they're reading the same articles we're reading. Yep, yep. So, buying habits, ordering habits. These are important things that restaurants need to know because they're in the business of, they need to make some money too, so. It's harder for us just because being in the business, when you're looking at a list, you're just trying to, I don't want to say it in a mean way, but I don't want to be ripped off. I don't mind the restaurant making some money, but major mock-ups irritate me. If it's something I can't buy, if it's a restaurant label, second label, then I'll gladly pay. But do you feel that way when yeah. you shop? Yeah. And that that is a little bit more how I will determine what I'm going to buy. If it's a wine that I really enjoy and I want to order it, then I'm going to order it, you know, kind of regardless of what the price is. But if it's something maybe a little more obscure or something a little unusual and I don't know how much that costs, then I might be more inclined to get it. But if it's something that I'm fairly familiar with and even if I like the wine, but if I know that I can buy a bottle of that for $12 and they're asking for $45 for that bottle, I'm not going to buy it because I I just, I don't know. I feel like, oh, you know, if I really, really want that wine, I'm just going to go buy myself a bottle of it. So I tend to look out for things that are a little bit less usual and sometimes those things will be priced a little bit more affordably because they're not the go-to for a lot of people so that tends to be my my way of ordering wine from a, a restaurant list I like that. I, I also get great satisfaction if I find a wine on a list 
and then I can source it out and put it on my shelf. I think it's, yeah, it, that it, must the feel story really good. behind it is really good too. And it, I think it helps promote restaurants if you can say, yeah, this is on the wine list here. They might try it in the store and then when they go to that restaurant, they might buy it at the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So I, I like doing that. Yeah, that's a nice business. Uh, businesses supporting other businesses. We're all in this together, especially in the wine world. You know, one of the goals that we have is to expose people to as many different kinds of wines as possible so that then they can learn new things to like out there because there's a lot of wine out there. So I know whether it's in a retail shop or whether it's in a restaurant, uh, we want you to try some wine. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. Please visit us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. You can get past episodes on there and leave us your questions and comments. We'll talk to you next week. Bye, bye.